All right, if you have a Bible, please grab it and make your way to the book of Ephesians, where Sarah was just reading from, Ephesians chapter 6. And it is great to see you guys, as I was telling people, uh, kind of all day long. Uh, I keep thinking someone's going to, like, we have security, but someone's going to pull out a gun and point at me and say, uh, put your hands up and give me all your money, because you guys all look like bandits out there. So I've got to get used to that. But if you've got your Bible again, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, We'll be starting there here in just a second. And there's a lot of movies out right now that are about war. If you've, uh, we can't go to the movie theater or anything, but there's tons of movies that are out. So right before everything shut down, Sarah and I saw 1917, uh, which is a great movie. We saw Midway, um, enjoyed seeing that. There's a lot of of war movies that are out there right now that you can stream or watch or, or whatever. And one of the things that uh, I I just want to land and have us understand is a lot of times as we think about life, and maybe particularly prior to even COVID and all that's gone wrong, we would just talk about, you know, life is a gift and life is beautiful and life is wonderful. And it is, but just like those war movies, life is also war. And I think we've seen that a little more evident. Things have been harder. Things have been different. But the reality is, whether we just recognize it now in this moment or, 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 or if this COVID moment thing hasn't, hadn't happened, the truth still remains that life is war. It's not all it is, but it is that. From the cradle to the grave, everything, I mean, your, uh, your heart and your mind and your um, school and your workplaces and your relationships and on and on we could go are all conflict are all fields battlefields of conflict. And the reason that it is that way, the reason that life is war, is because there's more going on than we can see. There's more going on in this universe. It's not just like us and God. There's a third element that we don't like to talk about a whole lot, but is the reason that life is war. And it's because Satan and his demons are real and oppose us. And we don't talk about, uh, uh, about that a lot of times. Uh, that sounds weird to a lot of people. Sounds really, you know, archaic, backwoods. That's a fairy tale. Maybe there's some good we can learn from it, like an Aesop's fable, but it's not real. But the Bible says, yeah, it is real. And people are in this world always grappling with, you know, the problems of the world, the problems of our individual lives, all these things that are going on and have gone on for, since the dawn of humanity. And especially today, we look for answers, and certainly there are answers to some of these things in psychology and biology and sociology But some of the things are supernatural. Some of the things are spiritual. Or at least to some degree. There's spiritual warfare issues. There is more going on than we can see. 
And so as Paul nears the end of his letter to the church at Ephesus, he wants to remind his readers of this truth and call them in the face of this truth to stand. To to not give in, to not fall in particularly the evil day. And the evil day is, simul- is, is to the, it's this moment that we are living in, right? Until Jesus comes back, that's the evil day. But I think also, Paul, the, the idea there is those are moments of intense temptation. Just intense temptation. And the call for us is to stand in the midst of the evil day. And so the main point of this section is is that call to to stand, to to not fall, to not give in, to stand in God's strength. Not our own. In God's strength and in God's armor because life is war. And there's more going on than we can see. We are in a spiritual battle and the forces of evil, demonic forces, are real. And it's a call from Paul then to, for the church to fight our sin. Well, we read this because we are blind, I mean, myself included, to our hyper-individualistic culture. Everything's about individuals, 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 individuals. This is written to the church. And yes, we are individual soldiers, but it takes an army to win victory. And so this is for the whole church laboring and warring and working together to stand, to fight our sin. And we got a lot to go through. When you read, you know, when Sarah read that, you're like, wow, that's a lot. Sarah knew that when she was reading. She's like, this is a lot. We're going to have four major meat hooks to kind of hang things on. So if you have uh, your notes around you, the first one is this. Prepare for battle. When we understand that life is war, the first thing we need to make sure that we're doing is that we are, that we have prepared for battle. So number one, prepare for battle. And it's an ongoing thing. That's why Paul says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Like as he's about to get into talking about armor, Paul is saying, hey, finally, that's what you do. Like there's a lot of prep work that has to take place beforehand. Right? That's why no one is in the, in the army or in the military who is, you know, uh, can't do, can only do a push-up or can't even do a push-up, can't even do a setup, can't run from here to the other side of the parking lot without stopping. Like, you can't just then don armor and think things are going to good for you, go good for you, right? You've got to, that's why they have a PT test. There's preparation that has to take place before you don that armor, and it's the same thing here. The word finally that Paul uses here presupposes everything he's already said. It it, it presumes that you understand, that you have been preparing, that you understand everything that he says. That you understand the fact of who you are. That you are in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3, that's what it's about. And then chapters 4 through 6 is the question, how do we live that out? We live that out. In Christ, in His strength. And as Paul has told us, man, this preparation, there's no shortcuts for it. But there's also no mystery about it. 
How do you prepare? Well, you do some of this. You sit under the preaching of God's Word. You gather with those around you. You have people who know you and you know them. And you can speak into one another's lives. Being a follower of Jesus is not a Lone Ranger project. You serve one another. You consider one another more important than yourself. All of these just very ordinary means of grace is how the Lord nourishes your Christ-likeness. And in so doing, it prepares you for battle. And so number one, prepare for battle ongoingly, okay? Number two, number two, as we think about life is war, number two, know your enemy. Know your enemy. Like in any fight, you need to know who you're going to be fighting. And so that's why in college football, Lord, please let it happen this fall. But college football, you hear a coach talk, you hear a a player talk, and they're going to talk about getting in the film room. They're going to talk about watching film. They're going to be studying their enemy. They'll look at their own mistakes from the previous game, but they're also going to scheme for, they're going to scout for this week's opponent. And they're going to look for uh, you know, formations and tendencies that they can pick up on and then exploit in the midst of the game. They need to know their enemy if they're going to be successful. And it's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. Well, then who's our enemy? Well, look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the first thing that we need to see here, right there at the beginning of verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so the first thing you need to understand is that people are not our enemy. Satan and demons are our enemy. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. And so people are not our enemy. So when the Bible talks about non-Christians, like we know we're not, if you are a member of the church, if you are a Christian, we know we're not to be enemies, though we act like it sometimes, maybe not in here, but towards other people. But we're not to be enemies. But with, with the non-believing world, what, how do we do that? Well, the Bible talks about the fact that non-Christians are not our enemies, rather they are captives. And our goal is to set them free so that they can become children of God. I mean, is that not what Jesus said he had come to do? He had come to set the captives free. And so we aren't at war with non-Christians. Our war is with Satan and demons who have taken people captive to do his will. And as you read this list here where you get, you know, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, a lot of people will take that and start trying to parse out all these like different levels of the demonic and that the rulers and authorities is dealing with earthly governments and so on. And I don't think that's the case at all. I'm not saying that uh, systems and governments can't be corrupted. Definitely they can. Absolutely. You see it. Be influenced by the demonic? Absolutely. I just, I don't think that's what Paul's point here is. He's not denying that, but that's just not his point. He seems to just be talking about powers that work with the evil one in general. 
And so let's talk about this evil one for a minute who's taken these people captive. And again, we don't attack captives. We seek to set captives free, right? Our enemy is this evil one. And so we need to know about this evil one. And so let's talk about Satan for a minute. And understand, especially if you're newer to Christianity or you're just kind of checking out, understand that Christianity is not dualism, where you like have a good guy on one hand and you have a bad guy on the other hand. We don't really know who's going to win, but we're on Team Jesus. Go, Jesus, we're pulling for you. That's not Christianity. That's not the Bible. The Bible teaches that God created all things, including Satan and demons. He, they, they originally were angels. But they tried to mount a coup against God, and God was like, please, and kicked them out of heaven. And ultimately, he will throw them into hell, into the abyss, where they will suffer eternal conscious torment forever. And so understand, hell is not some like underworld where Satan rules and reigns as king. No. Hell is a place created by God for Satan to suffer God's wrath for eternity. And so Satan was created by God, meaning, obviously, he's not God and not equal to God. He does not share God's attributes. And so God, like during VBS, um, Pastor John talked about like the three big O's, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Right? So omnipre- God can be omnipresent, everywhere present. Satan cannot do that. God is omnipotent. That means he has all power. Satan does not. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Satan does not. He is limited. God knows your thoughts. Satan can't, get, can't read your thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean he's not powerful. He, he's a fallen angel, so he's similar in power to, you know, angels. So he's got some power. And he's been observing human history, human life, for thousands of years, and he knows how to read people, right? Like, I am not, uh, I do not have the highest IQ in the world, but if you gave me thousands of years to study something, thousands of years, I'm about the end of that, it's going to be pretty doggone good at it. And it's the same thing with Satan here. He has been studying humans for thousands of years, observing them. And so while he can't read your mind, he can read your life. Know your tendencies. Know your weaknesses. Know how to throw flaming darts at you. And exploit those tendencies, just like a film study. And he's strategic with this. Verse 11, look, it says that we, we need this armor so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's tricky. He schemes. And usually he schemes in your life with things that you like. To draw you away from Jesus. 
to put your focus perhaps on politics and thus check the call to be an exempt, to follow the example of Christ at the door because politics supersedes the call of Christ. Not that politics is necessarily evil, but your focus has shifted. And so understand, when we talk about the devil, when we talk about satanic attacks, spiritual attacks, that does not mean we are talking like about actually dealing with Satan because he's limited. He can't be in all places at all times. He's not omnipresent. But he has demons at his disposal. Those fallen angels, rebellious angels who joined him in his war against God when God was like, please. And so we need to understand they are real. And they really are at work in the world and in your life and they hate you. And they want to destroy you. They want to destroy your life. They want to destroy... They want to divide the church. They want to rob God of glory, steal your joy, lead you to kill yourself. They hate you. And notice verse 12 again. What does... What does it say that we do with this enemy? Look at verse 12 again. For, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers we but against what do we do we we wrestle we wrestle it is a wrestling match life is war and it is a wrestling match now i have never been a bona fide like on a wrestling team or whatever when i was a freshman in high school the coach wanted me to wrestle and asked me all the time, please wrestle, please wrestle, please wrestle. But it was only because he had no one who could qualify for the 103 weight class. And I was 5'3 and 95 pounds. So I've never like done that, but I have wrestled a ton. Why? Because I have a big brother. And I can tell you this, not just because he's four years older and was you know, always bigger than me. But just it, wrestling in general... It is exhausting. Like when you're going full out, it, that's why MMA, UFC, man, those things are over in minutes. They don't ever go over like 15 minutes. It is exhausting to wrestle. And that is what we are doing. We are wrestling. And it can exhaust us. I'm exhausted right now. This whole COVID-19 thing is exhausting. It is exhausting trying to lead a church. It is exhausting trying to lead a family. It is exhausting trying to figure out what do we do with school? The options are awful. There's not a good option. There's not a good option for my typical children and for one of my children who has a special need. It's even worse. Sit in front of a screen for seven hours all day long? Or wear a mask all day long? That, and you need speech therapy and I can't see your lips? And you, you struggle to, with enunciation and now you're going to put them out? There's no good options and it's exhausting. And it's exhausting because we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood, but against evil. 
I'm not saying people making the rules are evil. No, no, I feel bad for people making up the decisions. It is, there's no, they are in unwinnable positions. I get that. I have great sympathy. But we do need to recognize disease, cancer is a demonic thing. Death is a result of the fall. It's not supposed to be like this. Diseases, including corona, it's not supposed to be like this. And as we face this or any other thing that's going on in your life, because we're not just warring against flesh and blood. There's more going on than we can see. It is exhausting. And if we try to fight in our own strength, as I try to do sometimes, you will wind up exhausted. Because life is war. We are not cut out for this. We can't handle a lifetime of exhaustive, re- exhaustive, re- exhausting wrestling. We won't make it. We just won't. And so we need strength from somewhere else. And that's why Paul calls us finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We look to the great I am that we just sang about for our strength. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the midst of His might. And even as we get prepared to start walking through this different armor, more important than the different pieces of the armor is whose armor it is. It is the armor of God given to us, but also battle-tested for us by the Messiah himself. I mean, very particularly in Isaiah 59 that Jeff just read earlier. And things are going bad. You know, the Lord saw that there was no justice, there was no salvation, and it displeased him. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no man to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He, the Messiah, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments armor of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And so even more important than the particularities of the armor we're about to talk about is the one to whom the armor belongs. And so even as we prepare for battle, even as we know our enemy, the biggest key of all of it, even more than the particularities of the armor we'll get to, is this. As you do these things, remember your king. When you face temptation, when you face exhaustion, exhaustion, when you face all these things pressing in on you, remember your king. Remember who you are fighting for. Yes, that makes a difference. If I'm fighting to defend my wife versus fighting to defend, you know, somebody else, well, yeah, I hope I do a good job over here, but I definitely want to do a good job over here, right? So remember who you're fighting for, but also remember who's fighting for you. I guess as we fight as soldiers, as an army, but we need to understand in the midst of this thing, we really are just the mop-up operation. Because the victory's already been won. Christ is the king. He's already won on the cross. He fought the decisive battle. And as his people, we are now in Christ. The whole point of this book 
And so, folks, don't look for strength. Don't look in the wrong places. Don't look in you. Look in Christ. Don't look. Our strength is not in our resources and ability. It's not in how long we've been a Christian, how much we know the Bible, how long we've been in ministry, and our ability to just keep on pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. We will run out of strength. Our strength is in our union with Jesus and His mighty power. Look to Him. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He's already won. I mean, remember chapter 1. Verse, I'll start reading in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, listen now, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. You remember Genesis chapter 3? what we call the proto-euangelion, where there's a promise, the first gospel, the promise that the serpent would strike the heel, but Jesus would crush the head. Satan is under his foot. All he has to do is step down. When he returns, that is what happens. And so the power, it says right here, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? We are in Christ. The same power that did all this, that resurrected Jesus from the dead, is the same power that's been given to us through the Holy Spirit. So we stand in his strength. And so as you face temptation, remember your king. Remember who you're fighting for. And remember who's fighting for you. He has already won. And you're just cleaning it up. And so we fight a battle in our life. Life is war, not because we're waiting to see who wins. But because in defeat, Satan is now just trying to sniper off as many people as he can to suffer with him. And so we've been given the strength of Christ and we've been given the armor of Christ, battle-tested by Jesus. And so verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on, this is like the Rambo getting dressed part when you watch the Rambo movie, he starts tying the bandana and stuff. Having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so as we... Live this life of war. Number four then, 
You've been given this armor. You've been given these weapons. So number four, use your weapons. Use your weapons. And the whole point here is, again, we'll walk through, but it's not the particularity of these things. The point is to stand. Like when temptation comes upon you, don't just roll over and believe the lie of the devil. Well, it's all right. I, I was born this way. You know, this is, just, this is just who I am. You guys all need to celebrate me. This is how I am. Or, or just go ahead, give in this one time. No one's watching. No one's going to see. No one's, it's it's no one's going to know. It's okay this one time. I won't do it again. I said I wouldn't do it again, but I really won't do it again after this time. When that moment comes, pick up your weapons and fight. And these weapons aren't just made-up ideas from Paul. They're all through the Old Testament. I showed you two of them. And so what are these weapons? Let's walk through it. Number one, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Let me just ask you a question. What is the opposite of truth? Lies. Who is the father of lies? Satan. That's all he's ever done is lie. He's going to tell you lies. But we are to speak the truth. We are to be people of the truth. We are to speak truth. We are not to bear false witness. And so, listen, speak truth. So straightforward. Don't share fake news on social media. Read it. Check the date. Check where it's from before you hit Send, click, share. There's so much fake news. And we know, our president tells us that. There's a lot of fake news. And he's right, but it's on both sides of the aisle. Don't bear false witness. Don't fall for clickbait, QAnon conspiracy theories. Tell the truth. Everyone's so slow to critique things. It's either 100% right or 100% wrong. And it if it's my guy, then it's 100% right and nothing can ever be wrong. And if it's the other person, it's 100% wrong and nothing can be right. And that's not true. Tell the truth. Don't. Chapter 4 talks about not telling the truth gives a foothold to the devil. Don't give a foothold to the devil by false truths. Half-truths. False statements. Secondly, Belt of truth. We live out truth. Truth will set you free. Set the captives free. Secondly, a breastplate of righteousness. It protects our heart. And there's two ideas we need to understand with this that deal with righteousness. There's something called imputed righteousness and there's something called progressive or practical righteousness. One drives the other. Imputed righteousness is the righteousness we are given in Christ. At the moment where we confess Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. We understand that. But before he died, he lived, and he lived a perfect life so that when we trust him, he not only takes our sins away, he gives us his righteousness. And so we're not just wiped clean like a blank slate. We are now perfect, blameless, holy in Christ because of what he did, not because of what we do. That is an imputed righteousness. It's a placed on you. It's a credited to your account. Once you have been imputed with righteousness, that will drive you towards practical or progressive righteousness ultimately. Some, at some times in your life, it's fast. Sometimes in your life, it's creeping, barely even visible. But it's there. 
Imputed righteousness will drive you towards progressive righteousness. Increasing holiness. And so when you fight, you, you fight. You don't have to give in. You can live a holy life. But one thing that it, it will not drive you towards is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is built out of pride. And who is the most prideful creature ever? Satan. Satan. And so wherever there is self-praising pride in your life or in someone else's life, you can be sure that the devil has had much, much influence. He's had way more influences in my life than he should. In your lives as well. Next, Paul talks about shoes. When I was in high school, I worked at a shoe store, and it was an athletic shoe store. So we sold all kinds of different shoes. So we sold, you know, uh, basketball shoes, running shoes, like bona fide tennis shoes for playing tennis, um, golf shoes, cleats, soccer cleats that are different from football cleats that are different from baseball cleats. All these different shoes, and so it's important to have the right shoe for the right situation that you're in. No one goes to war with flip-flops, right? And the shoes we're called to have here are shoes of preparedness, readiness for the gospel of peace. And we are ready to share, and we are to remember the gospel, and that it is a gospel of peace. That's what we are offering. We are offering peace. We're offering life. The good news of peace is that when Christ died and shed his blood on the cross for sin, two kinds of enmity were overcome. One was the enmity between God and sinners, and the other was between sinners, between humankind, between races and factions. Christ has brought an end to this enmity. So Christ became, chapter 2, our peace. He is our peace, and this is a gospel of peace. And we must always be ready to share it and to live it. Willing to lay down our lives to share it. So we are so happy, uh, you know, to celebrate martyrs who went to share the gospel. But also a lot of times people were martyred because they lived the gospel. They didn't conform to the culture. And we're called to do both, share and live. Willing to lay down our life to share, willing to lay down our life to live. Willing to give up things to share, willing to give up things to live. Willing to give up liberties to share, willing to give up liberties to live. Like Christ, taking the back seat, the road of humility, the road of meekness. We must stand ready. To live and to share. We've also been given the shield of faith. The shield of faith, which isn't like a tiny little shield like Captain America. It's like the size of a door, and it's to block the flaming darts that Satan is shooting at us. Because as one guy said, Satan will haunt you for things that Jesus has forgiven you. There's a true, Satan will haunt you for things that Jesus has forgiven you. And you'll just be walking along and then boom, flaming dart hits you in the head. 
haunted. Accusations come down upon you. You're not loved. You're not forgiven. You'll never change. You're a fraud. You're a fake. You're a phony. What do you do? You learn to block those thoughts with the shield of faith. You remind yourself of the truth of the faith. I am in Christ. I am not who I once was, and I'm not who I'm going to be, but pray. I'm not who I want to be, and I'm not who I once was, whatever it is. You remind yourself of the gospel, that you are forgiven, that you are in Christ, that you have been imputed with righteousness, not because you deserve it, but because God delights in giving mercy to people who don't deserve it. He paid your debt in full. You remind yourself. You remind that He gave you His righteousness. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He has won the battle. He's won the war. And so will you, your own mop-up duty. You learn to block those thoughts. Take them captive to the obedience of Christ. Closely related to the helmet of salvation. is to protect your head, your thoughts. Guard your heart and mind, mind in Christ Jesus. And one of the best ways to guard, one of the best ways of defense is a good offense. And so now we get to our lone offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is, verse 17, which is the Word of God. Before we had guns and cannons and all of this and everything was hand-to-hand combat, you would not run into a fight without a sword. That would be foolish. Do not try to go to war with evil without a sword. And a sword is what the very first spiritual battle was about. When you think about, in Genesis, the very first spiritual battle, what did Satan say to Adam and Eve, what was the battle over? It was over the word of God. Did God really say blah, 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 blah? And what did Adam and Eve do? They dropped their sword. They dropped the word of God. They surrendered. Folks, straight up, when you stop reading your Bible, you stop listening to your Bible, not just reading it, but actually listening to it, you stop going to church, you start sitting under, stop sitting under the preaching of God's Word. When you stop doing those things, you are laying down your sword. You are surrendering. And what happens when you surrender? Yes, the attacks stop, right? But now you're a captive. You're like, oh, it's so much better. I'm not getting attacked. Yeah, you're a POW. You've been captured. But every single time a Christian picks up their Bible, it is an act of war. You are declaring war on spiritual forces every single time because it is a sword. That's why, I mean, you know you're declaring war because... You pick up this book and you start trying to read and study and understand like any other book you pick up and you can just pour through it. You pick this one up and it's like, oh, I need to pay this bill. I need to text this person. Oh, I need to write my grocery list. I need to do this. Everything comes into your life to distract you. Why? Because it's an act of war and spiritual forces don't want you picking up the sword. Wage war. 
Use your sword. And then verse 18 talks about praying. And I can't sum it up any better than John Piper does when he talks about the fact that prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie. It is to communicate with headquarters. He says it's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Now God has given us a given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. And then friends, look at verse 18 again. Notice all the alls. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I love that Paul asked for people to pray for him to share the gospel. Thank you, Paul. It makes me feel a little better about myself when I feel inadequate. I need prayer for the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. But all these alls that you have up here, all times, all prayer and supplication, all perseverance, that we are to pray with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The unity of the church has been so much a focus of Paul in Ephesians. And here it is again. We pray for one another. We don't divide over non-significant issues in the grand scheme of eternity. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. Nothing else. And notice again, he says he wants to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? It's a gospel of peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. And that's exactly what this represents. Through the shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ, we have peace with God. He has made a way. We were separated. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy, has made a way. By grace we've been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves, it's the gift of God so that no one would boast. Again, boasting. That's a satanic thing. And then also this act on the cross, Jesus has brought reconciliation between people as well. And so when we take this cup and we do this moment of of remembering what Jesus did and and truly communing with him in a very special way, we're we're also saying that we are proclaiming, like together, we're going to continue on with this, and we're particularly going to do that together. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about, you know, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because he is coming again, our victorious king, and mop-up duty will be no more. And so let's take a moment of just silence and remembering 
the cost of our reconciliation. And the love of Christ to take our place willingly, though he did not have to. Also in this moment, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, repent and turn. If you have enmity, if you have disunity with a brother or a sister, go to them, repent, seek reconciliation brought through the blood of Christ. Friends, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Let's remember this together. Peel the little top off your deal. This cracker represents, if you are a believer in Jesus, please do this with us. If you've never trusted Jesus, then you can just kind of watch. This represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. And this juice represents the blood of Jesus poured out for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of him. As I pray, our worship team is going to come back up here and prepare so we can sing one last hymn, just as the disciples did after they took the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we come in this moment and we have no thing that we can bring worthy to say thank you for your sacrifice in our place, your gift of grace. That you would I mean, we are so lowly that you would even think of us And then that you would love us and rescue us. Personally, in your omniscience. Knowing each of us intimately. Knowing every moment that we have betrayed you. And yet, you would shed your blood for us. It's not fair. We are the ones who sinned. We are the ones who deserve punishment. You took it out of love. That is why we will praise you for 10,000 years. After 10,000 years, we have no less a reason to praise you than the day we first began. 
And so, Father, remind us of your love towards us and remind us also of your power. Your might, the great I am. And how now as we face these battles in our life and we grow exhausted and we are worn out and we, our strength is gone, we turn to your strength and we say to the forces of evil, Behold our God and tremble. You have been defeated. I mean, like a small child with a bully in their life. And then daddy shows up. Help us to know daddy's here. And it'll be okay. In Jesus' name.